0: John chapter 12, we'll pick up in verse 20 and read down through verse 36. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir... We wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loses his life loses it, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, Who is this son of man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. The word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for help. Father, we need you to be at work in our midst right now. It's hard for us to grasp the realities in front of us. That glory is in suffering. That you, Christ, your greatest glory is being lifted up. Help our hearts to see and believe. Lord, may your spirit be at work now, shaping us and molding us more and more into your image, Lord. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So on the one hand, this text in front of us is about glory. The glory of God, the glory of Father and Son. What do we tend to think when we think about the glory of God? The creation of the world by a spoken word? That's pretty glorious. We think about God preserving his covenant people through the patriarchs. We think of the burning bush, right? That God is glorious. We think of God thundering from Mount Sinai in majesty, the earth quaking before him. We think of God as winning. He wins, He dominates, He is glorious. And at the same time, this text before us is about suffering. It's about pain, heartache. What what do we think of when we think of suffering? It doesn't look a lot like glory. When we think about the glory of God, we think about all those great things. And this text is also about suffering. When we think about suffering, we think about pain and heartache and sickness and embarrassment and shame and even death. That's what we think when we think of suffering. And in our text today, we see both side by side, dying and living. Glory, not despite suffering, but through suffering. John is turning the corner, and he started this in chapter 11. This is 11 and 12 are like hinges, and he's going from what some scholars have called the book of signs to the book of glory. And this is that hinge, this is the text that all of that hinges on, this one right here. He wants us to, to know that the glory and triumph of Christ are imminent but that that glory and triumph looks like a cross. It looks like pain. Glory through suffering. Jesus as our glorious sufferer. Why does it matter that we see the glory of God through suffering? Why does that matter? I think it's this. I think it's because when we see the glory of God in His suffering, the love of God gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Grace tends to explode, but grace explodes only when you see the suffering of Christ. If we believe that glory is only or always winning, no pain, no suffering, then you aren't thinking rightly about your own life or about who God is. If there is no grid in your life in which God might call you to suffer, then you haven't learned this lesson. However, To get the glory of God right, it will deeply impact the way you see not only the the glory of God in the gospel, but your own life and your own suffering. You will be utterly undone. Having your suffering reframed and reshaped, not as losing and and an element of shame and embarrassment in your life, but reframed as glory. Glory. And a place at which you can meet Jesus. Last week we saw the Pharisees make this statement. See, the whole world has gone after him. And this text in some senses is kind of connecting those dots. What does he mean, the whole world? We see in verse 20 that some Greeks had also come up to the Passover. They're here for the feast. This could be people specifically from Greece, but it doesn't have to be. So, so to the Jewish mind and the Jewish world in Israel at this time, the, the whole world is divided into to two camps, Jews and Greeks. Greeks can be a catch-all term for Gentile, everybody else. So that's what we know about these guys, is they're outsiders. And they come, and they, they have this, um, they come to a disciple of Jesus. But I want you to look at their request. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. It, it specifically points out what they're after. They want to see him. This request is going to dominate the rest of this chapter. Not just the text before us, but what we'll see next week. This request is behind all of that. We want to see Jesus. And before we dive into it any further, I I just thought about this this week a bit as I was thinking about that question. Sometimes that question is a big part of my life. How about you? I remember early on just... Um, As God began to get bigger and bigger to me this question burned inside of me I want to see more of him where is that place for you is this a burning desire in you I want to see Jesus that is a powerful question in discipleship It should capture our attention when we first see Christ. He explodes to us and gets bigger and bigger. And then there are other times where this question is not at the fore of my life. And I would be willing to bet there are times and seasons in this room in your own lives where this question isn't anywhere on your radar. But it's a brilliant question. It's a brilliant request. Sir, I wish to see Jesus. So as we go through this, I want you to process that question. Where are you with that question today? Is this a request of of yours? As I said, this is going to be the backdrop of the rest of this text. So what Jesus answers is, he's answering that desire. We want to see Jesus. It doesn't give any more details about how that goes down, who's in the room. It's simply, we want to see Jesus, and then he answers. And he answers like this. To see Jesus, you must see his hour and follow him in it. To see Jesus, you must see his glory and be drawn to it. And to see Jesus, you must see his light and walk in it. His hour, his glory, and his light. First, we see Jesus and his hour. We aren't told why, but Philip has some sort of hesitation in bringing Greeks to Jesus. Maybe it was an ethnic thing, maybe he was like, I don't know how, you know, we have this inner circle, I don't, I don't know how Jesus is gonna interact with these Greeks. He does something interesting, he, he goes to Andrew. And at first I was like, man, what, what's going on here? Why is he taking these guys to Andrew? Why not go straight to Jesus? And it's this, it's from the very beginning, Andrew is the dude who introduces everybody to Jesus. He's like, hey, you gotta come meet this guy. He's unbelievable. And he is utterly unafraid to do it. So he takes him to a guy that he knows is kind of the, the, the lightning rod, the contact point for introducing people to Jesus. He takes him to Andrew. He's a little bit worried. He's a little bit, oh, man, I don't know what to do with these Greeks. Andrew is utterly unafraid. We, we've seen him several times be the, ones, the contact point. Hey, meet him, meet him, meet him. So this request... Of the Gentiles, of the the Greeks here, sir, we would see Jesus. Listen to Jesus' words as he answers. Jesus answered, Then the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. There's something about Gentiles coming to him in this moment that switches everything. This is it. My hour, throughout John, seven times so far in John, Jesus has referenced the hour, and every time it has been not yet. My hour has not yet come, or an hour is coming in the future. And it's always been put off, put off, put off, and here Jesus, they come and they want to see him, and he says, now's the time. This is it. And then he applies this title to himself again, this this Son of Man. And we just heard this glorious Son of Man text in Daniel. Now this is the hour that this thing is going to happen with the Son of Man. To him, to the Son of Man, dominion and glory and a kingdom will come that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting one which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall never be destroyed. The Son of Man is as big as it possibly gets. Jesus is saying, now's the time, now's the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now it's here. Big and glorious. It doesn't get any bigger than Daniel's image. If that scene that Howard read earlier doesn't shake you, then you're not paying attention. This king is huge and vast and glorious. And look at the very next verse, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. That's like a train wreck. Now the hour has finally come that everybody's anticipating death like a grain of wheat. Death. This glorious king and kingdom is coming and it's going to be accomplished but it's going to be accomplished through death. It's like an oxymoron. Oxus meaning sharp and Moron meaning dull. And you smash them together. Glorious sufferer. Awfully good. Bittersweet. Civil war. Definite possibility. An exact estimate. Extinct life. Glorious sufferer. Notice the analogy he uses this tiny grain of wheat falling pointless, falling into the into the earth, covered with dirt, dying. And yet, unless the seed dies, it produces nothing, but in the ground, there, covered, it, it looks like it's gone. But there, when it dies, what happens? Roots come. Rains fall. Sun hits. Roots go down. A stalk comes up and it bears fruit. More than itself. The death of a grain of wheat looks so insignificant. It's so tiny. Who cares? It's just one grain of wheat. And Jesus is looking at his own death. And he's saying, look, it's going to look insignificant. Just another Jew stripped and hung on a Roman gibbet. Insignificant. It's going to look pointless. What a waste. But it's going to bear fruit. It's going to bear fruit for the whole world. Would be fine with me for Jesus to stop there, okay, Jesus. To see you rightly, we, we need to see that you're going to to suffer. But then the reality gets a little closer to home because then he begins to apply this to you and me three times. Whoever, anyone, anyone, who whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me where I am going. There my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. It's okay for this glorious sufferer business to be Jesus, but this hits a little too close to home. He's saying these same realities apply to you and me. Followers of Christ, whoever loses Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it. Here Jesus is speaking about the inordinate and godless love that people have for this world. He's not saying despise your life. This isn't... um, He's calling out idolatry. That's what He's doing. Loving your life and leaving Him out of it. Loving, having all things going on. Yeah, I've I've got it going on. This life is ultimate. The things that I'm after are ultimate. My career is ultimate. My family is ultimate. My bank account is ultimate. He's calling out all of that. If you love that, then you're going to hate following Him. If, If that has captured you, Are you going to make this pilgrimage? On the other hand, to hate this life is is what we're told to do. That is in comparison with Him and His glory. Everything else is dim. It's, It's a reminder of this reality. We live this life as pilgrims, this world is not ultimate. That is what Jesus is teaching. This world, this life, is not the ultimate life. He is, and his glory. Then he goes on, to serve Jesus is to follow him. Wherever Jesus is, that is where you will be. That is where his servants are. Here, Jesus is focusing the statement even further. Hatred of this life in comparison with our love for him. And here, serving him means to be near him. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. The Father will not leave the servants of Christ without reward. To see Jesus is to follow him. And as we follow him as Christians, we no doubt will suffer. The New Testament is full of suffering. Suffering. Remember, Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we despaired of life itself. Despaired of life. That's an apostle. 2 Corinthians 4, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for what? An eternal weight of glory. Again, it's like a train wreck suffering and glory slamming together again and again and again and that's exactly what Jesus is saying and that's what he's inviting us into We might think that when we're suffering somehow God has forgotten us or abandoned us have you ever thought that God does not know that I exist. He is utterly gone. He, is, he, he doesn't know where I'm at. He doesn't realize what we're going through. He doesn't realize the arguments we're having. He, he doesn't know this shameful thing that I feel. Have you ever thought that? No, he, he is very aware. You will never suffer more than him. He is very aware and near us in our suffering. In our suffering, we grow and we learn something of the suffering of Christ that can be and is glorious. We also must see, in addition to seeing this hour that's coming, we must see his glory and be drawn to it. Look at 27 and 28 again. Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then, this voice from heaven, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Jesus is looking at this hour and he calls his inner being troubled. That's not a good translation. Verb is actually much stronger than that. It means revulsion, horror, anxiety, agitation. He's horrified. He looks at what what is coming, and he is horrified. John's account doesn't give us Jesus wrestling and sweating blood in Gethsemane. He he gives us this right here. He gives us this take on Jesus' agony. He's saying... I see this hour and he knows full well it's glorious and my soul is horrified. It's a difficult reality to face that Jesus would be daunted by anything. He changed the water into wine, he healed the lame with a word, he fed 5,000 with two loaves and five small fish, he walked on water, he healed with a word from miles away he he called the dead to life he's done incredible things sign after sign after sign and here at the end he's saying i'm horrified this is this is not going to be pretty and, and listen, here's where we have to understand the beauty of this, is he is horrified not because he, he's done something to deserve it. He, perfectly innocent. Why is he horrified about this coming hour? It's for you. And for me. He's, he's terrified of... He, he is about to bear the wrath and curse of the Father. He is about to bear what your sin and my sin deserve. You have to see this and frame this in terms of imputation, our sin being imputed to him, his righteousness imputed to us sinners. Now is my soul troubled. He had no reason to have a troubled soul. Do you see that? His soul is troubled because of us, because of our sin. Far from running from this hour, he says, he's reminding himself for this purpose. I came to this hour. This is what I'm here to do. And then he reminds himself of glory. Father, glorify your name. Jesus knows that the cross is looming. The glory of the Father for him puts everything into perspective. When he thinks about the weight and agony of what he is coming to do, he thinks of the glory of God. Calvin, I love how he applied this. By these words, he says, Jesus testifies that he prefers the glory of the Father to all things. And even neglects and disregards his own life. And the true regulation of all our desires is to seek the glory of God in such a manner that all other things shall give way to it. He sees the glory of the Father above all things. Even his own life. And then the Father thunders from heaven. I have glorified it. And we'll glorify it again. Notice, uh, John, it's great with this. The immediate misunderstanding. Was that thunder? I think, hey, I think an angel just said something to Jesus. They're not hearing. And he's wanting us to, to pick up on that. The very voice of God calling out audibly. Jesus clearly hears it. And he's saying, look... They're not getting it, and we have the same thing in our day. We have the word of God. We have his sacraments. It couldn't be more clear, and yet we're like, did it thunder? Was that an did angel say something? We have the very same things. Immediate misunderstanding. Christ goes on to explain both the voice and the glory. He says, first, this is not for my sake, but for yours. He knew that the Father was receiving glory from his life and sacrificial death. This isn't for my sake, this is for your sake. And then he goes on to outline for us what the cross will be. This is how Jesus will be glorified in the cross. This is where the glory is going to come from, specifically one. Now is the judgment of the world. In the cross, the world is on trial. The world, the sinful world, is put on trial in the cross of Christ. The guilt of the world is being judged in the cross. Second, the cross is cast, the casting out of Satan. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, Jesus says. This is the moment of the defeat of the enemy. Never again will the enemy condemn in sin and death those who are in Christ. This is his defeat. This is what the glory of Christ looks like. The world is being judged. The enemy is being cast out. And how will all of it be accomplished? Look at 32 and 33. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Lifted up and people coming. Christ lifted up. Where does that language come from? And why do the people have some notion that the Messiah is going to be lifted up? Because it's straight out of Isaiah. It's out of one of the servant songs. Isaiah 52 does that very thing. Let me read you two verses there. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Beautiful. There he is, high lifted up, exalted. And then listen, it goes on. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which was not told, has not been told them, they see. That which they have not heard, they understand. High and lifted up and so messed up, so marred as to be unrecognizable. Jams together the very same things. This high and lifted up king jammed together with Horror. Horrifying, And being high and lifted up on the cross, I will draw all people to myself. He's drawing his people. He's drawing his sheep. They will all come. Not one of them will be left out. If they belong to me, they will be drawn. I was suffering on a cross be a magnet for the nations that's what it's like lifted up on the cross terrible and it's like a magnet people just come to it because this being lifted up perfectly reveals the love and grace of God for sinners that's why people rush to it because we're guilty and he was lifted up the very son of God so that we might be pardoned it's like a magnet in the cross, you see the, the beauty of the love of God for His people, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, of course, because you look at the cross. If We believe this. If we experience seeing the glory of God revealed like this, how would that really shape us daily? I mean, I think we're believers, we're, we're a church, we're following Christ, but we, we quickly forget this. We need to remind ourselves daily, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every single day. We need to see this glory and salvation, glory and suffering crash together. And that would shape us. I think seeing the glory of God in the lifted up Christ would impact us in our singing. His songs would be in our mouths. How is this glory in suffering shaping our view of the Word of God? How is this glory in suffering, how does that change the way we relate to other people, our neighbors? Should we act more like servants? About the way we treat other kids at school, friends who annoy us, co-workers that we really don't like? Are we looking at the glorious sufferer, having that change our perspective on our life? How would this change our view of our, our own insecurities, the shame that we feel? There's never been anyone more glorious than Christ, and he hung on a cross for us. Does that not shape the way we view ourselves? What would a vision of the glory of the lifted up sun do to us? So we see Jesus in his hour and we follow him in it. We see his glory and we're drawn to it. And lastly, to see him, we must see his light and walk in it. The crowds are like, wait a minute. You're wrong, Jesus. We know that this son of man character lives forever. The Messiah is gonna live forever. You see the desire of people? It's so true of us. We want glory without suffering. A theology of glory is great. That's exactly what the people want. They want their Messiah to roll in, to to take over, to conquer everything, to fix all the political... It's like all our candidates win on Tuesday. That's what they want. We get our way on everything, and everything is great. Then our kingdom comes, and nobody has to suffer. And that is not true. That is not how things happen. Jesus has just said glory has to come through suffering and the people say, no, wait a minute. He's not going to die. There is no glory without suffering. We love our theologies of glory. We love winning. We love being right. Nobody's got hurt. And the gospel comes along and says, that's not true. Sin deserves wrath and curse. Somebody's got to bear it. Jesus answers them when they say this. You're not getting it. Lights out. He says, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When he said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. To their misunderstanding, Jesus responds very simply. There are two ways that you can approach the whole situation here. You can stay in the dark, utterly ignoring the truth, or you can walk in me. From the very beginning, John has said Jesus is the light. In him is life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Do you want to see Jesus? He's telling you right here what to do believe. Believe. That's his application. That's not mine. That's Jesus's. He is saying one thing. You want to get this glorious sufferer? Believe. Believe. That's what it means to walk in the light. Believe. And keep on believing. We so quickly forget. Believe. So, what will we do with this glorious sufferer? John just told us, this is our option. As we get nearer and nearer the cross, let's see it as glory. Let's see it as the glory of God revealed on earth, that very glory that saves us today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Forgive us, Lord, when we're dismissive of it. Forgive us when we forget your glory and suffering. Forgive us, Lord, when we forget that as we suffer, you know. You have gone before us to do something about it, to end all suffering. Lord, may we see you in this hour, this hour of wrath that is also an hour of glory for us. Father, be glorified. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.